Thank you for listening to Room 9, my daddy's podcast. Hope you enjoy. If you would like to help Room 9, please visit their support page. You can listen to Room 9 on your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook page. Please like it. Room 9. If you better yourself, you better the world. Hello to all of my fellow Room Niners. Just doing a quick introduction here before I introduce this episode. Room 9 has been around officially for over a year, and I can do nothing but show and say my appreciation for every one of you who listen and have supported me throughout this past year. So many awesome things have happened between a grant from the state of New York to being featured in Podcast Business Journal to just uh, encouragement and emails to the financial support from my listeners. You guys know who you are. Thank you so much. This would not be possible without you. That being said, if you'd like to help support Room 9, go to room9podcast.com and go to the support page. You can help out financially. You can help out in a way as to share our social media pages. And you can also help out by filling out a contact form so I know who's listening and who's paying attention. So thank you for doing that. This coming up episode, I sit down with the CEO and president of Horizon Health and the vice president of clinical operations of Horizon Health and Constantino and Judith Tejada. And I had an awesome conversation with them, and I'm just going to let you guys enjoy it and listen to it because it was an awesome, amazing, wonderful conversation. All right, guys, room9podcast.com. Get on there. Check it out. Let me know what is going on in your life. Much love. Have a great week. Peace. So Anne and Judy. Mm-hmm. Judy, how do you pronounce your last name? Tahada. Tahada. Okay, I was correct on the pronunciation. <laughs> I was practicing in the car. Is it this? <laughs> Is it that? <laughs> well, thank you for joining me, ladies. Sure. Thank you for You're having welcome. us. I'm very excited to. Anne, I was looking, and our last episode was in, that we did was in April. Oh my God. Yeah, and that feels like that was not that long ago. No, I can't believe it was it was April. That was a long yeah. time. Yeah, and but since then I have. I mean, I do have a new laptop, which I'm still having <laughs> trouble with. But I'm having. I have a new audio program I'm using. I got new microphones. I'm trying to remember even the equipment setup I had. It's a pretty impressive setup. So I enjoy Sean. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it looks pretty professional. The other the mics I'm getting now have these built-in shock mounts. And they keep all sorts of sound out, and I'm very excited for editing purposes. And it's perfect. It reminds me when I get pictures for LinkedIn. Oh, yes. have to do that. I um, was trying to figure out what I wanted to talk about. and uh, So are we. <laughs> so but I do want to touch base on Judy's role and uh, what she does here. But I wanted to bring up, because I'm noticing that as I'm kind of going through all of basically Western New York and all of the substance use and mental health and talking with so many different companies. And I'm starting to find like there's so many barriers, so many barriers everybody is coming into. And I don't think people know enough about them, like especially people who are like clients. And I'm going to read you this message I got from, I was in Horizon Village with this guy 
Okay. And he sent me this message. He was always somebody who was complaining. Obviously, I'm going to leave his name out of it. <laughs> but, you know, people, I think people think it's just like, all right, Horizon has a say and they can do whatever they want or and they have nobody telling them what to do and mm-hmm. why aren't they doing it this way and that way. And so this was the message I got, which was, this was pretty interesting. So it goes... Dear Room 9, I do like to listen to your shows, but I would like to hear your thoughts on the darker side of the mental health addiction services provided by Horizon. (laughs) I know you are beholden to them, but you never have anyone on to rebut what they say. Addict to addict, my friend, you have now become part of the death machine that takes people in the worst possible situations and puts them in the grinder. Congrats on the successful podcast. You might want to wash your hands. There might be blood on them. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's how we're going to start. But I I was. was, It's an interesting place to start, actually. mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. I was because I was like, I don't. I mean, I really. I know there's a lot of things that need to change. There's a lot of things, and I think things have come a very long way. And I think it's good to recognize that. But I think so many people are clueless to, as I said just a few seconds ago, that companies, not even just Horizons, but Evergreen, they can just do what they want and change what they want without anybody saying you can't do that or you can do it. And so I just am curious to hear from you gals, like, you know, what are some of those like barriers that you are told you can and cannot do? And what are the restrictions? How much, how tight is it? Yeah. I'm assuming Oasis is very on top of mm-hmm. what everybody's doing and wants to know. So I was just curious what your thoughts were on that. Well, I think maybe I can frame some of mm-hmm. the big picture yep. and then Judy can talk about some of the clinical yep. things. So this is a tough business to, to run. To say the um, least. <laughs> there's actually a high expense, and it should be higher even, mm-hmm. and low revenue. So like any business, right, you need that match of revenue and expense. So our staff has to do a lot with not a lot of resources all the time. And, you know, sometimes that can be very difficult. And we don't have all things for all people. So, for example, we don't have a lot of housing or you know, other types of support like that. The the other thing is just the kind of the clinical obligations. And we can talk about, I'll talk about regulations and Judy can talk a little bit more about our clinical responsibility. We are in New York state, which is a highly regulate, regulated state. Mm-hmm. And we have to, if we don't complete steps or tasks as required and in the required time frame, we're actually not compliant with our license. And we talk all the time with state representatives who do want to make it better for us. We talk about those barriers and the things that don't make any sense in light of what we're trying to do. Um, I'll give you and everybody in New York State will probably get mad at me for saying this, but you know, one, one example, one glaring example is we have to do a gambling screen. So if you're but it has to be at the assessment uh, level. So when you're first when coming you're first in. you're first coming in, okay. So you're first coming in and you know what that's like. And mm-hmm. I got to ask you about gambling. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even make any sense, right? Uh, it's not. It's, that is funny. Yeah. It's not really where we're at right then. That's yeah. not the problem. And we're super compliant. Horizon likes to make sure that we're following all of the rules correctly. Which you have to. And that leads to, for example, a ton of paperwork just a lot of documenting and paperwork and making sure that all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. I'll let Judy talk a little bit about clinical, the the clinical, although I'm interested, could you read again? He said something about the mental health and and dark side, the dark side, the dark side of 
but I would like to hear your thoughts on the darker side of the mental health addiction services provided by Horizons. And I did. And I don't. Do you know. have a clue? I don't. <laughs> okay. I don't. I said I'm unclear as to uh, what you mean by the darker side. And he just said, "I'm sure you are. We should talk sometime." I haven't pursued talking to him okay. anymore. I will because mm-hmm. I am interested. Because I really don't. I'm interested as well, so I mean, he can feel yeah. free to contact me directly. I don't. Uh, I mean, I don't really. I know people have had people have issues all the time with something, and from what I've gathered, people just like to complain. Yeah, especially when you're you know have your drug taken from you and you're mm-hmm. either not necessarily forced to get clean mm-hmm. but i mean you're there and you're you're trying to get clean or or you're forced to get clean and you know people yeah. are going to find issues with something everywhere right 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 i mean i i guess when i think about the darker side of our world i think about the 1.5 incidents per day that we have when i talk about that i'm talking about an attempted suicide mm-hmm. um, an overdose or a death of a patient, 1.5 per working day. Which is crazy. It's yeah. crazy. And so when you couple what Anne's talking about, the sheer amount of regulatory oversight with that kind of difficulty in terms of managing people, right, and, and where they are in their journey, mm-hmm. for our clinical staff, it becomes unwieldy to try and figure out how to balance competing needs. Because I think if you spoke to our clinical staff, they would say, all I really want to do is sit with the patient. And then there's all these other obligations which pull them away from being able to do that in as meaningful and an intentional a way as they would like to. So I don't, I don't think it's an easy job. No. At no. all. <laughs> I don't think it's an easy job to be a patient, and I don't think it's an easy job to be a clinician. That's the darker side, I think, right? I would. I mean, I totally agree in a sense, too, that... As you said, it's so individualized. Mm-hmm. This isn't treating one type of cancer where no. you can just focus in on it. All right, mm-hmm. what can we do? And you can use that same recipe for each individual. I mean, every individual comes in. It's a right. different way. It's a different path. And when you have all those other obligations and you can't sit down with each individual every day for hours and be attentive to what they need in their individualized path, it becomes very difficult. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, if I think back to when I started here 20 years ago, it probably was a little more prescribed in terms of Mm -hmm. how folks were treated, Mm -hmm. particularly with substance use because a lot of what we were seeing was alcohol and cocaine, marijuana. Mm -hmm. The opiate epidemic, I think, has completely shifted our way of treating folks. It's much more person-centered. It's much more harm Mm reduction-based. Family. Family Family-oriented. So I think you're 100% correct that it is very much every person sitting in a chair is an individual who deserves the time and the energy of that clinician to be able to treat in a meaningful way. And things get in the way. Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. I think why um, also at Horizon Village, the reason why it seems to be successful is because of community. It's the people there that are participating as well as the clinical staff that actually provide the clinical and therapeutic support. Right. Why did you stay? What was going on for you? Was it a share of what was happening in the community with the people that you were meeting as well as your your counselor and the the other support staff? Um, I think it was a combination. Mm -hmm. I mean, I made some 
good friendships there. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, some I've unfortunately seen slip back, but others I've kept. Mm-hmm. And a majority of it, I was there for me. If I were going to get that, mm-hmm. you know, kind of into it, I just, I didn't, you could have put me anywhere, to be quite honest, and right. that would have been successful because I was just done. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so much of it, I mean, I loved being able to, I loved the environment as much as you can love an environment when you're in right. that situation. A group living environment. Yeah. Right. And, you know, just being swept out of the whole rest of existence, pretty much, you know, for the whole summer. That was one of my biggest things mm-hmm. was like, every day I had to tell myself, if you don't stay patient and take care of what you need to take care of now, you're just going to be back here next summer. And then the summer after that. Well, you have a, a lot of gratitude. So that's the yes. other thing. The people that um, we're dealing with kind of all have their individual and unique feelings. You were done, so now on this side of it, you have gratitude. Mm-hmm. People that are not quite done and being pressured, and there's nothing worse than everybody kind of trying to control your life, that's a whole different experience then, and there's resentment with some of that. I don't know if you've ever, if you experienced treatment kind of under those conditions. Um, no, I mean, this was, again, this was my mm-hmm. first go around at treatment, mm-hmm. um, and I was pretty adamant to make it my last. But I also had a lot of things. I mean, early in my life, I've never blamed anybody else for anything. I've always, it's always come back on me, even if I thought somebody was 100% wrong originally in my head. I always ask myself, you know, what did I do? What was my part in this? I mean, those were, you know, things that I learned in my early 20s to do. And it was to my advantage. I always tell everybody one of the most hysterical things for me, hysterical in quotes, (laughs) was, I mean, I was doing heroin and watching, you know, lectures on behaviorism by Robert (laughs) Sapolsky. And so that was one of my biggest things is I was, which is kind of funny when you think about it, but I was always working on my own individuality and being very introspective from a pretty young age. Well, the thing about accountability is accountability is very empowering. You come from a very empowered perspective. Mm-hmm. And if I take a, if I take accountability and I take responsibility, that means it's in my control to change it. That is kind of a style, a personality style. It sounds like you've always had. Yeah. 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 I mean, a lot of people there you see, I mean, and this goes anywhere in life when people mm-hmm. have problems going on and they don't want to look at themselves and they want to blame and point and I'm going to fail because of this or I'm going right. to fail because of that. And and the interesting thing about re- recovery and community is there's got to be room for all different kinds of people, mm-hmm. right? That's why the recovering community works. First of all, it's not just one type of person. It's just not one experience. It's everybody and everybody's contribution into the recovery community, 12-step, other types of resources. They, you know, recovery coaches, it, it is, it's all the differences that I think make it strong, mm-hmm. um, but it also makes it hard. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it hard in the, in the earlier parts of treatment. Certainly, uh, Horizon Village is a uh, or any kind of residential treatment is a challenging environment. You're living with people 24-7. And yeah. something other people, yeah. Yeah. And and everybody's coming into it with a very, as much as there's similarities, a very different kind of perspective and experience. I don't know. I, I hope your friend kind of lets us know. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig deeper into yeah. that and he see. He might be an interesting interview, actually. Mm-hmm. I thought about sitting down with him. <laughs> yeah, we'd see. He's a. Uh, never mind. Yeah, but, but so I, I might, but I, might I think, sit down with him. You know, while we try to to encourage people and keep a positive, an interview just to get into what is it 
you know, what is it about that experience that doesn't work for somebody can certainly help help yeah. us. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I think, like I said, I think so much of it is to mindset going in. Yeah. And I'm just going to, I want to blame everybody else. He had a lot of health issues and, you know, he was always angry. So, yeah, you know, I would be interested to see. I, I didn't kind of pursue it too much because, I mean, I have a lot of things going on. It's like, this could be, this could be a conversation that could take a while and I'm not going to do it through Facebook Messenger. No, either. no, no. So there is, um, you know, I watch the social media too, and there's such a mix out there. And if mm-hmm. you look at social media as recovery support, there's all the people that are angry all the people that are judgmental, the people who are sad and hopeless, and then there's the optimistic, positive voices mm-hmm. of hope. So it's quite a mix. you got to filter out a lot to get to the message for you uniquely. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things I, you know, is going around is the whole disease or not disease thing, mm-hmm. and should it be medicalized and should it not? I really love, I don't know if you ever heard of Dr. Sally Sattel, yeah, know. she's actually, I'm going to have her on the podcast November 9th, which I'm excited about, but I've kind of reached out to her and she's been on all, she's been all over the place and has done TED Talks and stuff like that. But I love her kind of point of view. I remember she said the one time that if I was talking to a sheriff, I would tell him without beyond a shadow of a doubt that addiction is a disease. It's a disease, no question about it. But she says when clinicians come up and they ask me, is this really a disease? And she always talks about how they whisper it to her and... <laughs> She just says it's such a, again, it's a disease like no other, mm-hmm. like no other. It's so different as we just touched base on. It's so individualized, so different for every person. And there's so many. And yet so predictable. You know, when I talk to families, sometimes I can tell them the very predictable parts of this. I don't think you know this, but I lost my dad to alcoholism Did you? Okay. when I was 20. And the last couple of days of his life, when I was pretty aware, but not aware that he was dying, um, we had this unique conversation. I said to him, I don't, I don't want to lose you. And he said, I don't want to lose you or your mother either. But if it comes down to making a choice between staying with you and not being able to drink again, I can't imagine not ever drinking again. That's crazy. Yeah. So that truth from a family perspective is also really difficult to tolerate. And so sometimes I think that our folks don't want to hurt us. And so they they say they lie in order to be able mm-hmm. to not hurt, but don't realize mm-hmm. the disconnect that's, in that's that conversation. That's quite an enigma, yes. Right? <laughs> I'm going to lie, which is going to hurt you, so that but way I don't so, hurt you with right. the truth. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's tough. That's crazy. I mean, my sister, my father's an alcoholic, and my sister talked about it on the last episode we did. She's like, when I was probably 13 or so, I would write on these notes and just think, he's going to do this because I'm his daughter, and he loves mm-hmm. me so much, and he's going to stop drinking. And she just said, like, sure enough, within a week, or he would hide it for a little bit, and it'd be, it'd be right back. And yeah. she just really, I'm trying to think of the quote she said on the episode we did. But basically that, you know, I'm not taking responsibility for it and I can't expect them to just drop it and walk away. And I mean, it's true. And that hurts Mm -hmm. and that's tough. But I mean, that's where healing can begin. Yes. And that's when you can move on with your life. And I mean, I just think, I mean, my girlfriend, she looked me in the eyes two, three times like, what is wrong? Mm -hmm. What is going on? And of course, I justify that with, 
I'm not, I don't want to burden you with this. Well, you weren't, you weren't getting up every day to do that to her or yeah. to your family. It's the, uh, so that's the part of addiction that is so predictable and is the same all the time, how irrational mm-hmm. and illogical it is and how it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence or mm-hmm. strength or even intent. That's not what it's all about. So I think when you look at the, those similarities, for me, that's the disease. Mm-hmm. You know, we can talk about the impact on health and on the body and the disease state from just the decrease in your overall health. But that kind of power over logic and rational behavior, that's an important, we used to call it psychological dependency, mm-hmm. how it changes you, who you are, your values, you know, your dad who valued you, Judy, right, more than anything. But yet, really, the thing he valued most was continuing to use his drug, which was alcohol. Well, and I think when we go back to talking about clinicians, then, and the disease has always been described to me as cunning and baffling, and I think it is, I don't think that many of them have had either life experience, or even understand the nature of addiction at its core. Mm -hmm. Right. And how it will behaviorally affect my dad, you, whoever it may be. And so there's this tendency to want to just trust everything that's being said (laughs) and go with that. And then they get disappointed. Right. When something doesn't go Mm -hmm. along the predictable path towards recovery and then they lose faith in their ability to be able to do the work. And, and I keep reminding them it's, it's not about you, right? The best thing that you can do is create an environment of unconditional positive regard, of non-judgmentalness, and allow that person to come to you and feel safe with you enough that maybe, maybe they'll find a little bit of honesty in there. But clinicians really just guide a process, they don't necessarily, they can't make somebody get sober. Nobody could have made you no. get clean. Mm-hmm. Nobody could have made my dad get sober. We don't have the magic. We don't have that kind of power. No, and I always, I always really, it reminds me so much of like Eastern philosophy in the sense of a, like a Zen master. Mm-hmm. And it is. What do they do? They just, they're there and they, as you ask questions, they guide you back to what the answer is. Yeah. And I mean, that's really, I've always found so many similarities in that. Mm-hmm. Where you have to, if somebody isn't doesn't want to know the answer, you, they're not. You can't show them the answer. No. And I mean, it's just it is. It's an art form. I wish you know, if I had a magic wand, you know, the real magic wand is that we wouldn't even have to talk about this, and that we would no. all be in a different business. I wish that we could create a safe place where people could tell themselves the truth, mm-hmm. not us the truth, because so much time is wasted. Time, money health. So much time is wasted while we don't uh, deal with the truth. We're dealing with everything else. Truth is is healing. You know, uh, I have a friend who, who says, if you say it out loud, then it's, it becomes true and it becomes a commitment. Uh, because we do spend a lot of time, I think the dark side of treatment, we spend a lot of time not having truthful conversations. And that's hard for everybody. And I think it's certainly hard for the person, the patient, because they almost have to keep it up for their own reasons, and it's hard for the person sitting in the chair then to kind of get through and start on that healing path Mm -hmm. and guide that. 
because it's just dishonesty, which is, of course, is part of the disease. So yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, what scared me a lot when I was sitting in jail is the mind is so powerful and you can believe something with all of your existence and it not be true. Yeah. I mean, you can lie to yourself and not even know it. Like, yes, I really want to change. I really want to stop using when you were not even close to that decision. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that scared me is like, what if I'm just making this up in my head and this isn't true? And it took me a long time to start trusting that other voice in my head that I was being honest with even myself. I'm sure when you were actively using, there was a part of you that was lying to yourself about it was going to be okay or it was going to be different. And After this next one, I'll stop. After this next one, right. So then it's just a habit. Mm -hmm. That's how you keep the whole thing going. It's, it's a hard thing to break it. It is. It, and to be truthful. It takes a lot of work and a lot of discipline. Yeah. Well, I also think it's such a, I think about you sitting in jail, right? It's a lonely and an isolative, that, yeah. that particularly is a lonely and isolative place to be. But I think being in your head is a lonely and isolative place also, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that many folks that I have known who have walked this path, whether it's the path of mental illness or the path of substance use, they're very alone. Mm-hmm. And they stay alone because somehow, yes, I think the story that they can weave for themselves is a story that makes sense for them. And as long as they can keep that intact, everything's good. Mm-hmm. And the minute that I have to start to share that story with somebody else, then the walls start to break down. And I have to start to say to myself, that story doesn't resonate in the same way that it did when I was in my head. And I could keep it sort of intact and close and not have to share it with anybody else. The minute we have to start sharing, I think then you have to make yourself vulnerable. And that is and not scary. a state that a lot of people are comfortable being in is a state of vulnerability. I always find that interesting because that is the only state where you can genuinely change. A hundred percent. Everybody has seen it. Everybody. I remember, you know, I seen the Brene Brown vulnerability mm-hmm. talk years ago. I mean, I was still married. This was probably when it first came out, 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. something like that. And yeah, I remember just, I mean, that changed my life mm-hmm. and really was the downfall. That's when my marriage started going downhill is when I started becoming open and vulnerable because my wife at the time was like, I didn't sign up for this shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so I always tell people, Brene Brown is the reason why I got divorced. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, people are always interested in that. But, I mean, it's true. And some people, they don't want it. And, I mean, because I got rejected from that, it was tough for me. Even knowing that I needed to be vulnerable with the relationship I'm in now, I still had to keep challenging myself because I would say, all right, I'm going to clam up. I'm going to clam up. When you say people don't want it, they want, everybody wants to feel better. Everybody wants to be the best that they can be. It's just the the path that you have to mm-hmm. go through is so unfamiliar or scary, you know, to navigate. That's the problem. So, you know, we're talking about the challenge of treatment or the dark side, right? It's not everybody that's ready to go down that path. And so think about it. If people are not ready to be there, we are doing what we call interventions, We're putting stuff in and trying to make some progress towards that larger truth in the path. But it, you know, sometimes it's just not being received or uh, it's the person's not. I don't want to say not ready because that's that's old speak. Mm -hmm. I do think that 
every opportunity we have to form a relationship with somebody and have a different conversation is an opportunity that's not lost, even if somebody leaves and goes out again. People get changed because of their interactions with other people. That's part of being human. So it's an opportunity all the time to you know work with people, no matter what part of this they're ready Their for. Their journey they're on. Yeah. Somebody who's been in eight times through the system, I mean, that could be eight different times they learned eight mm-hmm. different things about themselves, and maybe this ninth time they've learned the final piece that they needed mm-hmm. to be able to con- sustain and continue. It's all cumulative. Mm-hmm. So even though uh, you said you know you just went kind of went around once, there was a process that was happening in you that was cumulative, and then where you start telling yourself the truth. Mm-hmm. And kind of once you start, it's hard to stop. It, well, there's no going. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss, as they say. As yeah. soon as you come out of that, I mean, there's no going back. Yeah. Well, there might be going There might be well, going back to a bad behavior, but there's not going back to the place that you can justify it all mm-hmm. or deny it all. And then those two things have to end up making sense, the behavior and what you know. And what you know. What you know yeah. in your heart and mind is the truth. So, Judith, let's swing. Um, Judy, I'm going to keep calling you <laughs> Judith. You're stuck with it. Um, you know, what is your, you're the vice president of vice clinical president operations? Clinical operations, which is a big title, which essentially means I oversee everything clinical. Clinical mm-hmm. and all that. And I read that mm-hmm. you do a lot of, what is, what did I read about the I schooling or university training? Training. Yes. Training. Horizon yes. so, University thing. Yeah. So I've been here, like I said, I've been here for 20 years, started out as a clinician at 1370 okay. Niagara Falls Boulevard. That was really my happy place. If you would have left me doing nothing but clinical work throughout, I would have been good. And I got tapped to do some administrative work. And mm-hmm. uh, I liked that part too. But I've, thank you, I've kind of never left the clinical world. I still see patients in private practice. Training for me, I think because I did have that opportunity to start 20 years ago, and I kind of knew who I was working with then versus who was coming in starting 10 years ago, you could see a dramatic shift in what clinicians were ready to be able to manage and and maybe what they weren't as ready to be able to manage. And so I think we started Horizon University in our training path for new clinicians in order to be able to make up for some of the things that don't necessarily get taught in graduate school. They don't really teach you anything about addiction in graduate (laughs) school, and they certainly don't teach you treatment of people who are subject to addiction. Horizon University allowed me the opportunity to design a treatment program that um, we use with all of our clinicians coming in. It's a two-month onboarding process that exposes them to different facets of behavioral health and treatment of behavioral health. Yeah. What are like some of the examples of like kind of classes, groups, whatever you want to call them? Person-centered care. Okay. Diagnosing, recovery 101, mental health 101, sort of the basics and the foundations of how to treat. Okay. Working with our population. Yeah, so they really don't teach any of that, huh? When you're getting your, really? (laughs) No. That's awesome. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's cool that you guys have started that. Right. I think that's important. And then a lot of... um, as people get experience, we also have the availability of advanced, advanced training. training. Okay. Know. So people can just keep growing right. and yep. going on. Okay. Yeah. No, that's awesome. It is. I did. I read your um your quote on the, I did this with Anne too. I read her quote on the, the Horizons uh, page. What is it? Really? It's a good one. <laughs> I got it right here. Which I liked it. It was, where we, where is it here? Change is rarely initiated when the waters are still. Mm-hmm. In fact, we mm-hmm. see clients when the waters are rough. 
and then we are able to offer the strength and hope that allows our clients to navigate those waters of change. Yeah. I mean, I think that when I was in graduate school... Is that I, your personal quote? I think it is. Wow. I, okay. I, a long time ago, one of the things that I was taught was you've got to be able to strike a balance between creating enough dissonance or discord in a patient and then also making sure that what's underneath is strong enough to support them as they start to grapple with, I want to go here, but I want to stay here at the same time, right? So being able to help them navigate through that path, that's what that's about for me, right? I I know that people, to your point, want to make change. Nobody woke up today and said, hey, I think it would be great to go out and shoot heroin, right? (laughs) That being said, if that's what I know and that's what I understand and that's how I get through my day, then yeah, that's what I'm going to get up and I'm going to do today. And so being able to take a step away from that, to be able to say maybe that isn't the only way for me to live, maybe there is a different path, you can start that conversation and you have to make sure that that person feels supported and cared for and has that unconditional positive regard moving in their direction in order for any of that change to occur. I I always think of the ripping the tablecloth off when all the Uh dishes are on there (laughs) because that's what you're doing you're you're trying to work on something that somebody is avoiding with this substance yeah i mean essentially that's usually what it ends up being is i'm avoiding talking about this so i'm you and i'm doing that by using this right and in order to stop using this i have to talk about this And that it, that is, it's like ripping the tablecloth right, right underneath the dishes. Right. Yeah, we don't want to do that. No. And I, <laughs> I think people, I think people come in relatively broken into treatment. And I, I would say my, yes. Yeah. My mm-hmm. job isn't to to grind the glass into the carpet. Right. My job is to find the glue, mm-hmm. and maybe start to put some of those pieces back together. And or maybe it's to look at a new cup altogether, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what build a new cup? I don't know. Potter one. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I forgot Anne takes the potter yeah. classes. <laughs> the thing is that when we talk about the human condition, you know, right now we're talking about addiction, add in mental yeah. mental health and the you know wide variety of mental health disorders that impact people. And then just plain old life with stuff that you don't want to be caught in, whether it's a bad relationship or unhealthy eating or gambling or other bad habits, stuff that just we fall into. It's what life is about. Mm-hmm. I think to your point earlier, when people come in and feel isolated and you know behind that there is shame and guilt and fear and all those things, it's so, such a shared common experience to human beings. Outside of addiction. Outside yeah. of addiction. Yeah, Absolutely. In, in so I think what we try to do with clinicians also, they're just human beings as well. And they all have experiences. So shame, fear, guilt, out of control, lack of opportunity. Those are not unique to patients with addiction problems. So once people go there and, and they, they're reminded of the human condition and what that feels like, that's then how we start to build a, a relationship and a trust to have those honest conversations and to take risks because it's not easy stuff. Anytime you try to change your life, no matter what part of it what you're it trying is. to change, that is hard, hard work. It is very difficult. It's yeah. hard. It's like the hardest work I know. Mm-hmm. 
So, and there's some things, you know, in anybody's life, in my life that I can sustain and some things that I keep fighting. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) I've talked about that so many times on here. Change is hard in general. It, it really is. <laughs> to do anything, whether it's get up earlier, get to bed earlier. Exercise regularly. Yeah, so much can... Netflix, whatever <laughs> it is, it's all, it's a pain in the ass. We don't like, we don't like change. We don't like change and it's, it's not easy to get to the ultimate place. What is the ultimate place? Because no matter how far you go, there's, there's, there's still, still more. more. And right? that's, that's what's so important to remember, a philosopher I love. Alan Watts always says, if the point of writing music was to get to the end of it, the best composers would have the shortest songs. Mm -hmm. And he's like, it's about the dance in between. And that's what life is, is Mm -hmm. you're just, you're dancing and you're going with it and there's no end to it. And And it's the unlimited potential of growth. Mm -hmm. So whether it's music or art or um, a podcast or spirituality or any of those things, that's what makes it exciting. The that journey. you don't yeah. arrive there. You just keep going and it's more amazing and wonderful all the time. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's something you have to continuously remind yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, it's about the journey. There's no end product here. Mm-hmm. There's no end game. You know, there's nowhere I'm getting that I'm going to say, all right, I'm good and I'm done. But what is the reward to the journey? I think there's a lot of rewards to it, but I mean, yeah, the biggest part of it is just it. To me, for me, it would be if I ever got to a place where I didn't think I could change anymore, it would be boring. And so it's the, it's, cha- it's it gives the challenge the excitement, of growth. The challenge, right. yeah, that continue the knowledge of knowing that I'm always going to keep growing and learning as an individual. I mean, that's one of my one of the biggest things that made me stop watching sports and just pick up and fall in love with psychology and philosophy is the more I learn, the dumber I become. <laughs> like, I don't know anything. It's just crazy. I love that. The more I like I can be, I'll be 89 90 years old, dying of old age, and I will still be reading a book to learn something new. Yeah. And right. I'm, I mean, that makes it exciting. The journey itself is exciting. You're, you're open to that. <laughs> and I think it's, I mean, it's huge. I think that's something, at least one of my goals is to try to get people to really realize that it is about the journey. And that makes failure okay. And failure is our greatest learning experience. You, you need to like quote that somewhere because <laughs> um, that is... I think people feel badly about themselves when they fail Mm -hmm. and they feel badly about themselves when other people seem to get it and they don't. And I don't know the gentleman who emailed you if that's part of what's going on, but you're in different places. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I think that uh, interestingly enough, people in recovery, uh, whether it's mental illness or substance use, I think are some of the harshest critics of self. And I don't know if that at some level becomes a convenience factor. So if I fail at something, then I have a reason to be able to return to old behaviors. Mm. You know, I I sit in sessions with folks and and I hear them characterize all the time, well, that was good or that was bad. And I'm like, no, it just Mm. was. And the minute that you start labeling something as either good or bad or right or wrong, then you have to have a response to that as opposed to if it just was or is, you don't necessarily have to have a response in the same kind of way. But that behavior of, or thought distortion process, right, of labeling things as good, bad, right, wrong, seems pretty prevalent in people who are in recovery with mental illness or substance use. Not only themselves, but of other people. Uh And kind of the mantra I always have is, people do the best they can. Yeah. 
everybody's doing the best they can. If you're in the active process of addiction, it doesn't look good to outsiders, but you're doing the best you can that day to survive, right? Somebody in early recovery, you're doing the best you can to keep moving forward and handle and manage everything that that's going on with you. Family members are doing the best that they can and they want to judge themselves too. Maybe I should have done this. Maybe Mm -hmm, I should have done mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. Maybe this is my fault. If only I would have. No, you did the best you could. And now here we are. Let's talk about where do we go from here? You know, I for one, and I know there's psychotherapists that make a huge living on the whole what happened, you know, what happened to you as a child. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a more practical sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now what? What do we get? There's so much opportunity. Let's talk about what we do next. What you do with it next. Yeah. I spend a lot of time in practice talking to people about being kind and gentle with themselves because they are in the process of making this enormous change um, incrementally, hopefully, but still in a more enormous change. And the more kind and the more gentle people can be with themselves, I think the better it goes. I spend a lot of time talking about give yourself permission, right? Just give yourself permission. I didn't do anything today. Okay. That's all right. Yeah. Well, I had a well, cup of tea and read a book. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. Not every waking minute has to be spent in the process of change because as you so have aptly put it, it is a process and not an event. Mm-hmm. So today you can do nothing. And tomorrow, if you need to, do nothing tomorrow. And the next day you can give yourself permission for a period of time to do nothing, to just be still. Because sometimes being still is in itself healing and restorative and we don't give ourselves as in the in the human condition we don't give ourselves permission to be still no Mm -hmm. not at all and i think i mean you hit the nail on the head i i don't think anything can really happen until you have the self-care and the self-love and you have that permission to make mistakes and screw up yep the labeling it good or bad and things just aren't that black and white Mm -hmm. and one of the coolest things that i have you have learned over the last 18, 19 months has been that I was doing a podcast with this. I came across her on psychology today. She's a mental health counselor in like Tonawanda or something. Brittany Bennett, her name is. Mm -hmm. And I made a joke about taking something in her office. It was like this cool little sign. And she was like, oh, I'd be flattered about that. And I said, oh, I hope somebody's flattered about the purse that I stole from them, (laughs) which I never really stole a purse. But, you know, I just said that kind of joke. And she's like, you know what? You you gave that person an opportunity to learn and grow from what you did to them. And no matter what we do or somebody does to us, it is an opportunity to learn and grow. And when we sit there and label something good or bad, especially when we label something bad, it gives us an excuse to be mad and not pay attention and not learn and feel sorry for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I just, that was one of the coolest things I have learned, even if it's like not my fault, or even if it is my fault, there's an opportunity for me to learn and grow. So all the people that I've hurt, not that is an excuse, and I'm not going to say you're welcome for me doing that to mm-hmm. you, but I gave you an opportunity to learn and grow mm-hmm. as I did with myself, with my mm-hmm. own mistakes. I say that about my dad, right? Yeah. I would not be where I am today had I not gone through mm-hmm. the experience of living with him and through his alcoholism. It changed my world. And do you ever go back and listen to your earliest podcasts? Oh, they're terrible. I do all the time. Yeah, <laughs> they're absolutely terrible. It's like my early pottery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even though even though one that we did that was episode twenty two mm-hmm. or twenty three, yeah. and I'm just like, wow. I mean, my editing skills, and again, speaking of like the process, is it's just mm-hmm. 
it's, I thought I knew something about editing with this free program I had, and then I have a paid program and I'm like, this is a different language to me. I think what I saw in you in the beginning and I still see is that it's just such a real and current perspective of where you're at. Uh, the not rehearse, the not, I don't have to say this, this is just where I'm at kind of thing. And that's always mm-hmm. the, the point of view I wanted to take with this. Mm-hmm. No, it's very, it's very genuine. Yeah, right. And, and that's what I wanted. Yeah, I didn't want it to make it seem like I was reading off a sheet of paper. And you know, even what I do, I've done a few solo episodes, and I want to try to start doing a little more of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, you even, know, I want to interview you because we're yes. doing podcasts. Yeah. So I can't wait to be in your chair and ask the questions. Yeah, that'll be nice because this is where <laughs> the pressure is. Here, I tell people all the time, you don't have to feel any pressure. The pressure is all on the host. So <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the beauty of being a guest on the podcast is if it's bad, it's my fault. <laughs> Nobody else is. You didn't ask the right question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, but, you know, so I try to find that balance of being prepared and then not over-prepared. Right. I don't want it to be scripted. I really like it to be an organic conversation and kind of mm-hmm. let it lead itself. But I mean, that kind of being said, we're coming up on what, an hour here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see you looking at your watch over there. Uh, I just keep getting, you know, the the infamous buzzing through my iWatch. <laughs> what? Oh, what? you got the fancy iWatch. Yeah, okay, yeah. That's what, what's what? going on. <laughs> but I, I kind of just well, I don't even know how I want to end it. I would just say, you know, give me your your lady's final thoughts on everything on the dark side of mental health. Mm. <laughs> but just in general, not really on the dark side of mental health. But for for me, the dark side is not about service. Anybody who's trying to help anybody who legitimately really is in this business to try to be a help and a resource and support, to me, there is no dark side mm-hmm. to, to those people mm-hmm. um, and to doesn't matter where they're working or what they're doing. The dark side is if people are doing it for the wrong and corrupt right. reason. So think about, I don't want to say this, but, the, you know, maybe the Catholic Church and some of those people, the dark side is when when you don't have the commitment and the real hope to help people. I don't think that's true of 99.9% of the people in this industry. Everybody's doing the best they can to try to help a terrible situation. Too many people are suffering, and it, it requires all of us to work together to try to just improve, you know, kind of one person at, our time, at, at a time, our community and families, so... That's great. Yeah, it's 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 so it's hard because, like I said, everybody's going to find an issue with something, and they're going to. If you want to find something to complain about, you can totally. Mm -hmm. But I have, and my, and I've said this so many times, is the reason why I you don't hear much complaining from me is because everybody I have met from every organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now I'm working pretty closely with four organizations: Mm -hmm. Save the Michaels potentially evergreen Mm -hmm. spectrum health and human services and then you guys Mm -hmm. here at horizon health and everybody i've met even when i was a client and a resident at horizon village i mean i didn't meet anybody who didn't have that genuinity authenticity i really want to help whether i agreed with everything they did or not was irrelevant to the fact that you know what these people want to help people change Honestly, that that's the best part about our industry Mm -hmm. is you'll meet some of the best people that you'll ever meet. They're good people that really want to help and believe in people. And that was kind of the point of my Know Your Leaders project was to be able to highlight those people. Yeah. What about you, Judy? (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I mean, I think it's simple for me if you if you go back to right and wrong and black and white and and the opposite of darkness is light, right? So I'm sure for some people there's a lot of darkness associated with our world and the world that we work in. And I also think there's a lot of light. I love it. And you can't have one without the other. Nope. <laughs> Got to have them both. <laughs> mm. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, sitting down with me. Thank, thank you, Sean. And I appreciate it I very much. Too. Thank All you. Right. Yep. All right, y'all. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Room 9. Had an awesome conversation with those ladies, and I assume it'll probably happen again in the future. So please be reminded to go to room9podcast.com, check out what's going on there, and I will be talking to you next week. All right, peace.